Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. First thing someone has to do, whether I've started many businesses and and obviously we're buying lots of real estate and whatnot. And I think what anyone has to do first is understand themselves. They have to understand where their comfort levels are. Like, am I okay with a, you know, a high risk emerging market stock or do I want to buy like a local stock or a bond that doesn't return you much? It's, you know, some people get into a fund where it just, it's controlled by a broker and they go, Property's the same. It's like, do I want to be in an A, a B, or a C? Am I okay losing $50,000? You know, whatever you invest in, whether it be multifamily or it be the stock market, because that can change the circumstances on which how you invest as well. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Chris Roberts, and as always, I'm your host, Kent Ritter. We'll jump right into it. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Kent, I'm fabulous, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share some value with your listeners today. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this, but let's start at the top. So Chris is the CEO of Sterling Rhino Capital. He's a full-time entrepreneur and investor, and he's been doing that since 2007. So a lot of good experience that we can draw from today. He owns and operates a multi-million dollar sales and marketing company, and also has a property management company that manages his own rentals. And it looks like Chris has done just about everything within real estate from flipping to single family rentals to raw land. Now he focuses on multifamily. So excited to talk about that too and, and what drew his focus there. But Chris, again, thank you so much for coming on. And why don't you tell our listeners you know, a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Kent. My entrepreneurial life started at a pretty young age. I was on my own at a, at a very young age and had to kind of cut my teeth, just learning things on my own and was fortunate to come across a mentor around the age of 18, 19, after being on my own for several years. And he kind of just taught me a lot about the value of the work ethic and just putting your head down and grinding and getting things done. And that built a good foundation for obviously building a sales and marketing career, as you, you alluded to in the beginning, that made me a little extra money. And as a result of that, I realized, you know, hey, instead of buying fancy cars and, and Rolex watches, I, I needed to figure out where I can put this money to make it work for me. Started diversifying, you know, like, you know, stocks and, and other little things and bought my first piece of property, had a great conversation with a friend. And uh, he just, 
he set a fire in me, man, when he was talking about just the rental and, you know, spreading out your risk and single families turned into to multifamily duplexes and multifamilies and things of that sort. And now we're into larger syndications. So that's a real short story, but most of it was just educating myself and, and being sort of driven by what others had done in the space and the success they were having and just figuring out how can I take all of that, extrapolate the good from them and then build my own model to have my own sort of success, if you will, in that space. And it's worked out extremely well. That's awesome, man. Congrats on all the success. So you mentioned that you had a mentor early on. I think that you know, in my own life, mentors have been extremely impactful and, and have catapulted my career and where I would be. So obviously I understand the impact, but tell us a little bit more about, about that mentor relationship. I mean, what was it about that that helped you, like you said, you know, get to the next level and really drive you? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kent, for asking that question because I think mentors, there's this broad term that, you know, you hear the word mentor and you think, oh, I love Tony Robbins says, you know, I'm not your guru. It's like, you know, (laughs) mentors are not your guru either. And they're not going to drag you through success, right? Mentors are extremely busy. No matter what, it's a life coach. It's a mentor in multifamily real estate, you name it. I've had a few throughout my life now, but what's great about this particular mentor was I work for him And he just basically mentored me as I worked for him. And the more I worked for him and the more I volunteered my time and gave of myself to help and just be part of his world, the more I learned and his knowledge just literally rubbed off on me and I just couldn't get enough of it. And I can't, I guess, overstate how important it is to really add value to other people's lives. And you will be shocked at how much value comes your way. In other words, you may have to volunteer hours of working on someone's property or, or on a project or or just helping out and just offering a lending hand. And I mean, literally, you might have to change sewer lines or you might have to empty garbage or or do something maybe that you don't like. But the way that's going to look to the mentor is extraordinary. And as a result, they're going to realize that you have the work ethic and the foundation, the mindset to then be worthy of their knowledge and they'll share it with you. And if you don't have that in the beginning and you just have this, well, no, I want to learn this. It doesn't work that way. You have to give, 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 and then you'll start to get eventually if you do it right. And so early on, I had a kind of a life mentor, if you will, that pointed me in the right direction, thankfully. And then throughout my life, I've hired other mentors for specific skill sets, whether it be you know speech coaches or real estate mentors or whatever. That's a great point. You know, you're you're looking to to give back first, right, and add value first, rather than just showing up and saying hey, I'd like to pick your brain or can I ask you about this? Can I, you know, take some of your time, right? Yeah. And I think, Kent, that's that's really important because here's the way I see it. The way I see it is when you hire a mentor, you're not hiring a mentor to drag you through the mud or drag you to success, if you will. You're hiring a mentor so that they can guide you and point you and push you, right? And give you an education and let you go and lead the way, if you will. And they kind of keep bumpers on you. And I find that oftentimes we can't get out of our own way to understand that. We can't put in enough hustle for the mentors to see our potential and then put the lanes on us to guide us in the proper direction. We just go in there mindlessly thinking this person's going to drive me to success. And that's a huge mistake I see a lot of people make. They're just sort of waiting for that thing, for that mentor to give them that thing that's going to take them over the finish line. Just, it just doesn't happen. So anyways, I, I kind of open a lot of people's eyes when I talk to them about that. It's like, well, yeah, I guess I, I didn't think about, you know, how I could get out of my own way. And like, actually, this person isn't just going to make me successful. I've, I've got to actually think through this thing and put in the work, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of, like you look at the, you kind of look at it at the mentor as, okay, you know, I've signed up for this thing. It's, 
it's kind of like with a new technology or, or even I would equate it to like, you know, you go and you, you buy like a, a treadmill for your home, right? It's like just buying it, like, is it going to get it done? Like you got to put in the work, you got to, you got to set it up. You got to get on the thing. You got to actually make it happen. It's the same thing with a mentor, right? Like it's there to, the mentor is there to, I guess, you know, help you along your journey to propel you, to help you get through roadblocks and and avoid potholes and stuff. Right. But like, you're the one that has to, has to be driving the car. You've got to be pushing yourself to do that. So I think that's a great point. I just, it's really good perspective, right? Because I think mentors can be really valuable, but it's all about how you use it, right? They're a tool like anything else. Right on. So what was it that, I guess you talked a little bit about, about why real estate, you know, you saw, you saw people getting wealthy. You wanted to you know, follow that model, but what was it specifically about multifamily that has you now focusing in that space? In anything that I've done throughout my life, there's always been something that has internally inspired me. And I, and I say that because I've had some challenges throughout my life when I was growing up and stuff. And when I was younger, there were cer- certain things that inspired me to really want certain things, right? Some people see fancy things and they want those and they think they're going to make them feel better. Some people are inspired by wanting food, as simple as that seems, right? Or shelter. Others want to be part of a group. So they do silly things because they want to be welcomed into that group or whatever it is. Multifamily, you know, and I know this is kind of off on a tangent slightly, but when you think about multifamily or any kind of investing, it's like, okay, you start and you put your money in. Why are you inspired to do that? Why, why do you put your money in? We well, put it in because there's that promise sort of, if you will, of, well, hey, if I put my money in the stock market, then I get, let's just say six, seven, eight percent and that money's going to grow. And then, you know, when I turn 70, I'll have a hundred thousand dollars in my account and yay, you know, I made it or whatever. And then all of a sudden someone comes along and says, well, wait a minute, there's a, there's a little bit better vehicle where you can probably get slightly higher returns than that. Plus you can get cash flow. And you can offset your risk if you go here and do this. And so same thing with single family. It was like, well, what's the benefit of buying a single family rental, let's say, versus putting that same amount of money in the stock market? The difference was the freedom of cash flow, right? And having the flexibility to play with that asset. And th- and I'm going to get to the multifamily part in just a sec. But as it started, it was, okay, I'm inspired to take money that was working okay for me in the stock market, right? Or in a savings account working very little. And I'm going to go put it in this little asset where I can get a little bit of cash flow, but I'm also building a little bit of equity. And if I decide to rent this thing, this is great. It'll appreciate because historically real estate does. I'll have someone else pay down that debt and then I'll just do it every six months or so. And I was doing that for a little while and it was great, but I just wasn't growing exponentially. And when multifamily was introduced, it was interesting because I looked at it and thought I can put a little bit more effort in, maybe even bring in a team that can help and assist in some of this, these larger tasks, you know, the underwriting and bringing in attorneys and things of that sort. And now I can offset my risk, right? I'm not swinging the hammers as much. And I'm not only increasing the cash flow, but also increasing the equity that I build up quite fast and a lot better than a single family rental. And so it was about exponential growth. And what inspired me mostly was I wanted to create that, uh, Corey Peterson's great about this, is legacy wealth thing. I wanted to create wealth that could go beyond when I'm not here. And whether it's the trust, the charities we work with or family, I wanted to make sure I set myself up so that I was independent of the system. And, and I know everyone has a different terminology for that, but the system, you know, working for corporate America or relying on, you know, social security or whatever, I wanted to be free of that system. And so that's really what inspired me to want to exponentially grow. And then obviously the type of returns and, and just mitigating the risk was really enticing to me as well. That's awesome. And, and I like how you brought it back to kind of the bigger why, the reason around it, the ability to, to build your, 
you said legacy wealth, but but also to contribute, right? I mean, I know you do charity work and other things and you're able to give back. So I think that's awesome. I mean, for me, it was the thing that got me really excited was just this idea of like, like you said, you've, you find this vehicle, it's like, you know, you're driving a Toyota Corolla your whole life and all of a sudden somebody pulls up in a Ferrari and is like, hey, get in this one. We, we can go a little faster. That's how it was for me. I was like, oh, wow, like why? I wish I would have known about this 15 years ago. And that's when it got exciting for me of like, wow, I can like, yes, I, I can set myself and my family up and, and that's going to be great. But like the impact that I could have on my own community by having friends invest, relatives invest and just build wealth in that whole community. Like that's when it got really excited for me. That was like the genesis of this podcast. It was like, wow, more people need to know about this stuff. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It's pretty amazing. You know, obviously we're fans of multifamily, right? You can tell. What are some of the barriers though that it seems like if you've done your research like we have, right? It's a no no brainer. It's why we've we both kind of dedicated our lives to to doing these investments, right? But when you talk to investors, I mean, what are the main barriers that you hear? Or what are the questions or concerns that people have that maybe is just just a lack of education? Yeah. And let me ask you specifically, Kent, would you say on the in passive investor side, active investor or both the fear? On the passive investor side, on, okay. on the people that are, you know, just unfamiliar, right? With real estate or with multifamily and, and are used to, you know, the 401k and their stock market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I'm big on this whole fear concept. Like I, I did this little video that talks about overcoming your fear. And I use a quote from Jack Canfield and it's everything you want is on the other side of fear. And I love that because I think in life in general, we all have all these fears and some of us live behind the fear and some of us live on the other side of fear. Like Jack says, right? We push through and we figure it out and we go. I love the Navy SEALs. I think they're a perfect example of that, right? Fear is a driver. It doesn't hold them back. They just go. It's part of the environment. Things just suck and they just know it and they just go. And that's amazing to me. And that's how you kind of have to be in life. You have to go, hey, there's great things. There's things that kind of suck and are going to be challenging, but you have to push through. You have to see what's on the other side. And how do you do that? Well, you have to put certain things in place. And one of them is educating yourself, right? You have to educate yourself. You have to get out there and ask others, right? Well, hey, what's your experience with the syndicator group? You know, did they pay you on time? What are the pros and cons? Did you like the flexibility? Here's what I'm doing over my IRA or whatever, you know, because it's deceiving because when you look at your screen on the IRA, it says you got all these returns, but that's not the real number. You know, there's management fees and other things that you oftentimes don't see. It's not as transparent. Whereas with multifamily, there might be some fees, but you're still getting your returns regardless. The fees aren't taken out of your returns after you see your returns, which again, it's pretty transparent, easy to understand. So I think I I would say for passive investors, you got to educate yourself. You've got to feel real comfortable with the sponsor. You've got to resonate and synergize with them. And I I know it sounds kind of silly because oftentimes, and I'm, by the way, I'm passively invested in 2,300 doors. So I deal with a lot of syndicators in addition to my own deals, right? But I have to be comfortable with those sponsors. I have to feel like there's a good synergy going both ways, not just their deal because deals are deals. And there's not gigantic swings in these deals. I mean, the returns are very similar, but it really does boil down to that operator and how I feel about them. And do I really understand myself? And this is a piece of advice I would give any passive. Do I really understand myself, the numbers that are in those PPMs? 
You know, do I understand how to underwrite this deal myself so I can see, did they miss something? You know, are they doing this thing right? Are they actually going to hit their markers and such? So I would encourage anyone to just educate yourself and just talk to a lot of sponsors and just make sure that you resonate well back and forth and that you feel good about who you're giving your money to, especially with this day and age with the internet and how everything is so tied together socially and whatnot. That's great advice. That's kind of a common theme that's run through this podcast is a bad sponsor can kill a good deal and and vice versa. You know, it all starts with who that person is and their level of integrity, right? So you mentioned you have to educate yourself. I mean, what are ways that people can do that? I mean, if they're starting from scratch, how can you get to the point where you know what those numbers should be, right? That you said in the PPM, for example. Yeah, I think the first thing someone has to do, whether I've started many businesses and and obviously we're buying lots of real estate and whatnot. And I think what anyone has to do first is understand themselves. They have to understand where their comfort levels are. Like, am I okay with a, you know, a high risk emerging market stock or do I want to buy like a local stock or a bond that doesn't return you much? It's, you know, some people get into a fund where it just, it's controlled by a broker and they go, property is the same. It's like, do I want to be in an A, a B or a C? Am I okay losing $50,000? You know, whatever you invest in, whether it be multifamily or it be the stock market, because that can change the circumstances on which how you invest as well. Now, fortunately, full disclosure, you want to always talk to your CPA, real estate attorneys, but full disclosure, most real estate doesn't generally just fail miserably unless the operator does something shady right? Which it's federally regulated for the most part by the SEC. And so that's difficult because there's a lot of risk there for an operator to do that. They could ruin their lives doing something silly. But in general, real estate holds its value pretty well. So in my opinion, which is why I love this space, it's a little bit more secure than what you might see in the stock market, especially with timing. You know, if you're trying to get out, say at 60 and get your money, well, you can't really just take it all. Whereas with multifamily, you've got cash flow going constantly and then you just exit when the time's right. I think the person getting into this space has to understand themselves and their risk tolerance. They have to understand, do I need cash flow or do I need equity or do I need both? In other words, do I need money up front in payments or do I want a bigger payout maybe at the end or a combination of, of both? And then figure out those numbers and then start finding operators and or deals that fit those numbers so that you can be in your, let's say, comfort zone and not have sort of a buyer's remorse or stress yourself out. I talk to investors, lots of them every week. And it's amazing the spectrum of people that come in and the roles and goals they have and where they want to be in life. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, awesome. So let's talk a little bit, a little bit about Sterling Rhino and what you guys are focused on. You know, there's a lot of different spaces in multifamily, as you said. So specifically, what is your guys' strategy? Yeah, we like to buy the value-add assets, B and C, which is you know, pretty common. There's A class as well. There's even D, which <laughs> those are tough. You know, C and B, where you can add a little value, force the appreciation so that you can kick out your returns. And in, in my opinion, in an asset where you can force appreciation, you've got almost kind of a fail-safe and a few different ways you can slice the pie. So you'll have this cash flow in the beginning. Oftentimes on a value-add, it might be a little bit lower, let's say, on a, than a class A, but your equity on the back end might be a little bit higher because you force that appreciation. Whereas on a nicer asset, there may not be as much work to do. So you might get a little better cash flow right out of the gate, but you're not going to 
perhaps in some cases get as much of that larger kickback at the end when we force all that value up, right? So we like that space because it gives us a lot of flexibility and ups and downs. And we bought a few properties during COVID and found that those were outperforming Performa, which again, is an indicator of a value-add asset, even during a real significant challenge none of us saw coming, right? I would say that that's a good space that we focus on and, and we like that. Not that we may not diversify someday into other things, but that's where we are today. Yeah. No, I, I like that you brought up just COVID and the impact, right? How has your portfolio done overall? Have you seen much of an impact? It sounds like you guys have done well. Yeah. I, I think the reason we've done well, and let's put it this way, any syndication group really the value is in the purchase, right? Of course, you have to execute the plan, but it's always in the purchase. And that was the way it was a single family land, everything else. If you buy it right and you execute your plan, you're going to be okay. Now, I know COVID was a very significant challenge. None of us saw coming, but all most of us did that are successful at it is got a little more conservative in our underwriting, okay? And as long as you don't run out of money, you're in pretty good shape because ultimately it's going to figure itself out. That's just how it's worked historically. Short of the world ending, real estate will thrive at some point, even if it has a bump in the road. And I would look at COVID as kind of a bump in the road. There was a little bit of extra vacancy, a little bit of extra bad debt, but there's also government assistance that's come in. People still need a place to live and we're still under inventory for where we need to be for all the way back from 2008. Pretty much construction stopped for four or five years. So I think there's still a lot of demand and people don't want to move out of a B and C class because the, the next step down is a D or a mobile home park. So they'll fight to stay in there. And we found that really it affected us slightly on bad debt, but actually allowed us to clear a few units and renovate a little bit more efficiently because generally people won't leave, right? Sometimes they'll even stay at a higher rate because they don't want to move and you can't even renovate the unit. Where in our case, actually, when all this hit, some people just sort of panicked, I guess. And they thought, okay, I can't pay my bills after a few months and they just left. And that opened up the units to renovate. So we were also able on our units because we bought them at a pretty substantial amount lower than market rent, able to just go into the existing classic units and raise rents pretty quickly. And that also offset some of that bad debt that we had or extra vacancies because we had escalated rents a lot quicker than we thought. So there's just so many variables, as you know, that go into a deal. But I think it's all about how you buy the deal and how conservative you underwrite the deal. And during COVID, we all had to step up and get very conservative, which really limited deal flow because you had to have an extra 200000 in lender reserves and you know all these other things that you had to put in there. So, yeah. And still do, right? We're still kind of operating in that environment. And yeah, I mean, uh, our own personal experience, I mean, we're putting close to double the cash into a deal that we would have pre-COVID, right? Whether it's working capital, whether it's extra reserves for CapEx items. And yes, you have your, your COVID reserve from the lender and all those things. But I think, like you said, it's it's how you buy it. And if the deal still works with that extra cash in it, then then you know it's going to be a good deal and, and you know that you're going to be able to, to get through the ups and downs. And, and I like what you said about that macro view, right? I mean, if you go back to, to supply and demand, no matter the bumps in the road, at the end of the day, there's just not enough affordable housing for people in the US, right? We're millions of units short. And so at the end of the day, because I'm a big econ guy, you know, supply and demand will win out. That's why we like this investment, right? At the end of the day, I mean, you just, you can't fight supply and demand. Right. Well, you know, can also, I mean, think about the inflationary situation that's about to happen. I mean, smack us all upside the head, right? I mean, so there's just, there's so many variables that you, you could see coming even before COVID. 
And then if you just got a little more conservative and protected yourself, you'd be okay. And I think I talked to several operators that have, have been in the same boat. Some pulled back and didn't buy during COVID. I mean, we're working on our third deal during COVID, which 100 plus unit deals. I mean, those are those are challenging, right? But you know, at the end of the day, I, I think if you just put your head down and follow your principles and just get a little more conservative, you, you find them. They're just harder to find, right? So yeah, you mentioned inflationary environment, and and I think we are we are in a uh, we're in a unique time right now. I mean, rates are extremely low. The Fed has said that that they're going to let inflation run, which is the first time they, they've said that in, in quite a while. So we expect rates to stay low for at least the next couple of years, is what we're seeing. But understanding, I guess, one your perspective of of kind of what what the future holds. And then based on that, how have you adjusted your strategy? Are you doing different hold periods? Uh, Have you changed anything else related to your strategy based on what you think will happen? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question that I think most people will answer a completely different way. But the way that we do it is, first of all, we don't run from any of these challenges. We we don't step back and say, well, let's just wait till next year. I mean, we, we really dig in and analyze the data. And there are some syndicators that are really focused on data. Neil Bawa and there's others that are like, no, I just go in and I do this and this is how I do it. And there's not as much of the strategy that goes into it. Um, for us, we analyze everything. We analyze all the data, the market growth, the trends, the migration to the South, all the stuff going on out there and try to figure out what's the best place for us. And then we also look at, well, how will inflation affect things? I mean, put it this way, Kent, this is amazing. You know, to ship a container from overseas, a container of anything, you know, Target, Walmart, you name it, might have run you like two thousand dollars to twenty five hundred dollars just nine months ago. Okay, those same containers coming to the West Coast now. We're just talking freight. Those containers will cost you anywhere from eight to ten thousand dollars today. Okay, now a container, the materials in that container might cost you five to eight thousand dollars. Your freight has now exceeded in some cases the product that's in the container coming over. So when those land those drywall sheets and the OSB sheets and the washers and the furniture and you name it, those prices are going to have to go up. And what does that do? That forces a lot of other prices to go up. And employers obviously start forcing wages up. They have to. You can't stay. It'll crush the economy. So everyone, the tide, if you will, will start raising it. It's not fun. It's not friendly. There'll be higher taxes likely. But at the end of the day, there's going to be more money flowing. So yeah, of course, there's going to be more taxes and you can't dwell on that stuff, right? So we look at that and we say, okay, so what do we have to do? How do we have to model things? Well, first of all, we don't run from it. We go in and we execute our plan. And actually, we got more aggressive during COVID. We actually raised our rents. We, we didn't, oh, well, let's slow roll it. We, we were lenient on late fees and things like that. Like, yeah, you know what? We'll work with you. We'll waive these. We'll do this. We'll do that. But we didn't shy away from actually going in and aggressively raising rents because in these properties, rents were lower than market. Why should we leave them there? So we quickly, I mean, we have one building, we raised 56 units within four months, $100 a month, which was like a 19% increase in rent. We did that four months. And we only had, I think, six tenants move out of those, I mean, out of the 112 units or whatever it was. But we also put money in the building. We're cleaning it up. We're doing all these great things and they love it. They would rather have a safe, clean place to live and pay a little bit higher rent. The bad tenants that probably shouldn't have been there anyways, they left, right? Because they don't want change. So sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. I hope I, I answered your question. Kind of. Did I answer it? Yeah. You know, I, I think you did. You know, it's interesting. I mean, just so many different perspectives out there. I just, I just like to hear where people are at and kind of the approach. I mean, I think it sounded like you guys just, you're rolling with the punches, right? You're, you're not pulling back and just adjusting strategy based on, on what you're seeing. So based on all the analysis that you've done, I mean, what markets are you investing in? Which ones are you liking right now? 
we just really love the South. There's a lot of folks going to the South. We look in other areas like I say Southeast. We, we like other areas like we go in Texas, Virginia, looking at Alabama a little bit, Carolinas. And there's some other pockets of you know deals that have come up. There's some other hot emerging markets for retirees, you know, Idaho and and others, but we try to focus on areas where we can have a little bit lower rents, where we can push those rents up a little bit, and then good job growth markets like normal and population growth if possible. Sometimes that's a little difficult with people migrating all over the place right now, but since most are moving to the South and Southeast, at least statistically, that's a little easier to fulfill. But yeah, just basic variables. And you asked me earlier about our, our strategy in general, just like our markets, we're looking at markets and looking at shifts and trends and and where the population growth is going, trying to feel that out. Retirees are huge. I mean, there's 10,000 baby boomers a day retiring. So wherever they're going is kind of interesting as well. Although they're in more of the senior centers and such, it does obviously affect everything else. That's kind of what we're doing. Gotcha. Is there a specific strategy or something that you're doing within your properties that has provided excess value for you guys or been kind of a home run? Is is there something that that you're doing that you're just doing across every property now because it's working so well? Yeah, I think, well, some of the the heavier value add, uh, we realized because the rents are so low, like in one instance, we added a trash fee because we found the tenants just were kind of disrespecting the property and we were paying for trash, but they were just throwing trash in place. Like it, it was becoming an issue. So we implemented a trash fee on top of it. And it wasn't a common fee that we saw out there or had we done before, but we added it and nobody even complained about it. It was like, so then we just hired a cleaning crew which absorbed about half the garbage fees. So the other half brought the expenses down, which was interesting. It seems simple, but it really didn't cross our mind because we thought, well, we'll just clean up the property. But we got tired of doing it after three months and thought, well, let's implement a fee and that'll stop them. And it did slow it, but it actually made us more profitable and they didn't even really care. So that was interesting. You know, we're, we obviously are looking at rubs and all the other things that most deals that you'll do on most deals. But for the most part, that was a surprise. Another thing we did during COVID was we put clauses in our contracts where, you know, it protected us if the owners got a little lackadaisical and maybe didn't collect rents as aggressively or had higher vacancy up into leading up into closing that would give us bonuses. And that's not common. And a lot of sellers may not sign off on it on the PSA, but they did on ours and it got us a pretty good chunk of change at the end because in true form, especially with owner operators, they tend to get a little a little lackadaisical at the end there. That protects you and gives you a little money if they do get lackadaisical. So there's some unique things that we've done that have been very helpful. Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up. I mean, we we've taken a similar approach, I think, and and especially when buying from more, like you said, owner operators or what I call more of like a mom and pop owner, you can one, yeah, I mean, you know, things can get a little loose at the end when they're going through the sale process. But two, I think at times they can be more more willing to agree to terms, the PSA, for example. I mean, we we had a similar example where we were acquiring a deal and and we had concerns over the amount of month-to-month leases, which was, I guess, was the previous owner's strategy with the eviction moratorium was to let people go to month-to-month so that he would have the flexibility to, to still evict if he needed to. But the problem is when you're trying to get a loan, they don't want to see a bunch of month-to-month people because they're worried that half your property is going to leave if you take over. So we had to do a similar thing where we, we worked with them and, and created an addendum and put protections in place where we actually had bonuses or, or kind of payments for every month-to-month that still existed. So we were able to align incentives to get him incentivized to get people on 
full-term leases and protect our downside. So you can do creative things like that. And this was even, this was after the fact as we really got into due diligence and really understood the lease environment after our lease file audit. So we were still able to go back and, and, and negotiate in that way. So creative ways to protect your downside, right? Especially during COVID, I mean, it's just important to, to be thinking outside the box a little bit. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you actually shared your story because we had a similar situation month to month, which became a challenge with a notice to vacates and then evictions. And then, oh, wait a minute, you can't evict. So now they file CDC forms that freeze everything. And then, okay, now what? Right. And then <laughs> you go to court. Thankfully, on the last deal, we did 112 units. We only had like, I think, two that filed these forms that we really can't do much with them now at this point. We're kind of sitting there trying to work with them, but it's been four months and they haven't paid rent. There's only two of them. And it's fine because our performa, I mean, more than absorbed plenty of that. It's just, uh, it's a challenge because you want to work with people and you want to, you want to win together. You know, you don't want adversarial stuff going on. It's like, you just want to, anyways, that's interesting. I'm glad you shared that. Thank you. Because we, we went through the month to month challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you've obviously, you've got a wealth of experience from starting businesses to running multifamily and doing syndications. I mean, what are some of the biggest lessons learned you can share with our listeners so so maybe they can avoid some of those missteps? Well, a couple of things in general in syndication. One, make sure you've got your capital ready because I think a lot of folks get into the space thinking, oh, if I find a deal or something, I can you know, I can, I can go and make it happen. And you really need capital and you have to have usually a little thought leadership or a great team or a track record to raise that capital. So just be ready and, and make sure that you're raising your capital. Make sure that you put systems in place. And again, systems could be part of your team. It could be your team as a system. It could be automations, CRMs and, and tracking and such. And then the number one thing I would say is you have to have a strong work ethic if you're going to be in this space. And if you don't, your partner better because it's gritty, it's difficult, it can be very challenging and stressful as well. And if you're not mentally prepared for that and ready to put in those hours, then you could fail in this space. And I think most of all, at least for me, I'm very accessible to my clients, my investors, my partners. Whenever something's going on, they know they can get me and we solve problems very efficiently and quickly. And I think that's that's probably our number one key to success is just really staying on top of things and holding each other accountable to get to that finish line. That's awesome. That's awesome. Any any other big lessons learned? Any big issues with the deal you've had to overcome? Anything like that? Yeah. Uh, well, specifically, the, one of the deals we had was the documents were all basically manual. There was no digital records. And it was a value-add, 35-year owner, 35-year original owner, right? Selling. And I eventually ended up dealing directly with him. And the, the biggest challenge I found was what the brokers were telling me, really half of it wasn't accurate. And so I had to go in there and spend you know, 10, 12 hours just in one day going through stacks and stacks of documents and then actually help this guy to sort of build T12s and rent rolls and have an accountant come in and do. It was unbelievable. And it took, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of my own personal man hours to get through this process. So I, I would say, don't underestimate this process. Be ready, get everything in writing and make sure you give yourself plenty of time, especially in this day and age, to get to the finish line. In other words, you might need extensions. You might need a little extra room for closing. Money hard, not hard, right? That was popular before COVID, kind of went away during COVID, things like that. So just be ready for all of those challenges that could come and give yourself extra room. Yeah, great advice. Very good. As we wrap things up, we like to go to our keys to success section. And to start off, 
what is the one question that every investor should be asking their deal sponsor if they only get one? I hear the question all the time about failures and successes and things like that. That doesn't mean much to me. What I want to know about a sponsor, this is me. What I want to know is I want to know about them personally. I don't really care that they have a big team or that they've done a hundred deals or whatever. I want to know about them personally. Obviously having some experience is important. You want to know, have you actually bought some of these properties and things like that, which you can usually get the data on their website. But me personally, I like to have conversations with people to get to know them. So I would ask them some personal questions, you know, things about their personal credit, their personal net worth, their business experience, right? Their values in general. Why are you doing this? Do you want to retire early? Do you want cash flow? What's I just like to understand the person I'm investing with. And that's that's me personally. Man, I that's really good. I never get asked those questions. It's all I rarely do as well. But yeah, I mean, I think I think those are super important. And I was just thinking about that. It's like, I don't think anybody's ever asked me any of that stuff. It, it it's always just right into the deal. I often find myself trying to back out and say, well, let's start, like, let me understand you a little bit. But but yeah, no, I think, and I think that's the first time anybody said that in, in all the 30 something times I've asked that question. So I like digging in, into the personal side. I think that's really important. I guess without being asked the direct question, like as a sponsor, how do you help people understand who you are and, and why you're doing it and, and all that? Actually, Ken, I think the challenge is, especially today, we're not people people anymore right? We're a facade of who we actually are. It's crazy when you get on social media or like even in a Zoom room, you know? Oh yeah. Like social media, of course. I grew up talking to people like the way I built my wealth and my life is being a people person and like spending time with people and like being on teams and like going out and doing things together. And it just, I enjoy that. So I want to know about you and I want you to know about me. And then hopefully we can do some business together as a default or a result of that relationship. Not what's the return seven. Okay. This guy's giving me seven and a quarter. So I'm going over here. Okay. I mean, it, you know, that's what unfortunately a lot of this business is. And I don't think for me, it's, that's not as important. I would, I would take half a point, honestly, half a point less to know I would go to battle with that guy on the other side, or I could go have a beer with him or I could go hang out or, you know what I'm yeah, saying? And I think absolutely. we're just kind of missing that. You could wear a three piece suit, I could wear jeans. I could wear a three-piece seat. You could wear jeans. We could still do business together and be friends if we know each other and we understand each other. That I guess that's my overlying 30,000-foot point to that, right? No, I like it. I love the perspective, honestly. I think it's great. What are you most proud of in your career? Most proud of being able to not only give back to my family. My mother had me when she was very young and struggled and just didn't really have much. And she, she fought, which is how I do it. I fight, you know, to get through things. And it's nice to be able to give back and give her a little bit better life. And I'm probably most proud of beyond my family and my, my wife and the things that I do for them in their lives. But I'm probably most proud of the partnership we have in our charity work and how many people we fed and all that stuff. I wrote a book and we give it away. And, and I just, for me, it's, it's a great way to go back to the challenges I had and to know that I've made a difference in some parent's life with this story I told or fed somebody with the donations we gave because I was literally in that position. And that's really meaningful to me. It means a lot because this money thing, like I could go buy the watch, I could go buy the car. I could, that stuff doesn't mean anything to me. It did when I first started and I was young, but today that stuff doesn't mean anything to me. I just want to go out and rock. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Well, I mean, I guess, first of all, I mean, thanks for, for all the work you're doing. I know it's a, uh, what is the charity? Is it Feeding America? 
Yeah, we partnered as an enterprise partner with them. Everything we donate goes to 100%. Our book and everything goes to them. And we feed like 10 people for every dollar because they're very efficient. And then Tony Robbins matches every dollar we donate because he's also an enterprise partner, but you can imagine he's like the enterprise partner. Oh yeah. He matches. And so I think I checked the numbers last week. We're at 244,000 something meals we've served as a result of those donations. That's awesome. The other thing I was going to say, isn't it funny how, how the priorities evolve? I was the same way when I was a management consultant and I got my promotion to director and and it, it was early. It was early for somebody to get promoted. I was fortunate in that way, but I went out, bought the nice watch. You know, I had had a nice car and everything. And it's like, the funny thing is like now I drive a 10 year old, it's, it's a Lexus SUV, but it's 10 years old. It's fully paid off. And I'm like, I'll ride this thing into the ground. Like I, don't, I just don't care anymore. Priorities change. I think you realize what's really important and you know, what really gives you, you joy, right? And it, it's not those material things. So absolutely. You know, Ken, if I give your audience just one piece of advice right along those lines, Stephen Covey has a saying, it's satisfied need no longer motivates. And it's stuck with me forever since I've read the book. And it's exactly that, you know, it only motivates you until you have it. And then after a while you, you just, oh yeah. And then eventually in life, as you get older and your priorities change, they really don't motivate you. Knowing you can pay cash for it is nice, right? And it's just not a motivation to go and buy it. If, when you have to finance it, there's for some crazy reason, all this motivation to go buy it. But then when you can actually pay for it. <laughs> right. <so>. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Cool. What book should everybody be reading? I love books, man. I read a ton of books, podcasts, you name it. I just absorb everything. A recent one I read was Principles by Ray Dalio. Oh yeah. That's great. Yeah. I like that. There's a bunch, TED Talks and How to Win Friends and all these other great books. But that that Dalio book was pretty cool. It really went in deep about building corporate America and uh, Americana. What does he call it? Ameri- Ameritocracy is what he calls it. Yeah. He said that a yeah. thousand times in that book. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's one book. Awesome. And then what is your number one key to success? My number one key to success is I show up and I get it done. If you ask anyone in my life about me, they will just describe me probably with the word work. I put in maddening hours seven days a week, and it's not an exaggeration. Most of my people can reach me very early in the morning, late at night. Uh, I take very few vacations, very few days off. Uh, actually, I, don't, I can't tell you the last time I actually took a day off, and it's because I really love this space and because there's so much work to do. And I can't quite explain it. I think the, it comes from when I was younger and the survival mechanism that was put in play, but I just put in the work. And if I can't figure it out, I hire people or surround myself with people that can, and we just get it done. That's, that's my number one trade to success. Awesome. I love it. So Chris, thank you for so much for being on the show today. How can folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more about Sterling Rhino or more about your book and what you got going on? Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I, I love jamming back and forth with folks who are doing this as well and, and just sharing the tips and tricks. You can find us by, actually, if you want to you know get into our system and just learn a little bit more, you can text the word RHINO, R-H-I-N-O, to 66866. That's just a really easy way to just jump right in and just learn. And you can opt out, but it's just free information. You can check us out at sterlingrhinocapital.com or find me on LinkedIn, Chris Roberts or Chris D. Roberts on LinkedIn or on YouTube and all of that stuff as well. Yeah. Awesome. So you're a man that's easy to find. Yeah. I like that. Easy to get a hold of. 
Cool. Sure. Well, we'll make sure that's all in the show notes so that the folks listening can get a hold of you. And Chris, thanks again for coming on the show and bringing a ton of value to our listeners and hope we get to chat again soon. That's awesome, Kent. Thank you so much for what you do. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to everybody. And yeah, have a great day, man. Awesome. You too. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.